Hey, this is Annie. And Samantha. And welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You, a production of iHeartRadio. So Annie, I know last year, one of your favorite movies happens to be Knives Out. Yes. Am I correct? Yes. So what is it about movies like that that you like? I, I loved that movie because... It was really fun. I felt like everyone was having fun. Like the actors were having fun and the writers were having fun. It was very almost caricature-ish, but still believable. So it almost felt like clue level in terms of the board game. (laughs) Like the way the design was and the way the characters were, the outfits. And everyone had a motive. I love guessing like, oh, could it have been you or oh, it was you. Um, and then you, you got Daniel Craig's accent, which was so fun. And then I thought it was a new take because I'm somebody, and as we talked about, you know, what actually does extrovert versus introvert mean, I've come to realize, like, for me, that new thing is really important. So I felt like Knives Out was a really new take, fresh take for me when it came to that genre of like the twist in the middle that you didn't want this person to get caught and then, you know, another twist that that's, it wasn't even that in the first place. But then also that it's kind and sweet and it kind of revolves around kindness, yeah. which uh, is a big, big thing for me. Something that I love is when these characters are are kind and and things happen to them that are decent <laughs> and it yeah. turns out okay. Right. And I think, mm-hmm. yeah, it's definitely one of those new takes, as you said, on a whodunit, mm-hmm. which I feel like everybody loves. I know that's why uh, my grandparents love things like Perry Mason, those yeah. Columbo shows, because it's all about the whodunit. And I think that's a big part of the genre in general. And yeah, this one, it's kind of like as you were talking about Clue, you were talking about the game, but in the movie, it's a fun take. It's a it's a hysterical, like, oh my goodness, it's a mystery. What is this? And yeah, none of these people are likable. Like they literally make it that way where nobody's really likable or overly likable. Like it's one or the two. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's kind of like you yeah. all have a motive, but at the same time. But yeah, I'm asking all of this because one of the big things about these types of movies are the fact that it is based on crime. Um, (laughs) And we were going to get into it a little bit later about why we may actually like true crime. And I say we less, more more so than me, I guess, than you. You don't love the true crime stuff as much as like, yeah, mysteries. Mm -hmm. But a part of the true crime indulgence, I guess is the best word, is that you kind of, it kind of is a mystery that is unfolding and you're trying to figure it out as well, especially if you don't know what's going on. Unfortunately, because it is real, it takes a really dark turn at the very beginning of the tales, I guess. And that makes it completely different. And yeah, that's what we're going to talk about today. And again, true crime has been around for a very long time from the beginning, I really want to say. And though the media and medium has changed quite a bit, uh, true crime has changed and adapted right along with it. Of course, if you've listened to our podcast for a while, you may have heard our past hosts talk about women's love for true crime. And if you haven't, you should go and check it out. But we thought we could do a quick revisit of our love for this and why it's not slowed down at all. But first, let's do a quick review of the history of true crime. Yes. So let's start at what some would call the beginning. But as we continue to like hound upon, oh, also see our Truth Hounds episode. Um, In our female first episodes, history is always a bit tricky. 
And though we're talking about what's first recorded, it doesn't necessarily mean that it is the actual first. It's just the first that we we know of. So according to definition.com, true crime is literally just, quote, based on or describing an actual crime. And to go to what we're going to look at specifically for this episode, we're going to use the definition.net version, which is, quote, a nonfiction literary and film genre in which the author examines an actual crime and details the actions of real people. The genre has been described as infotainment and as factional, a mix of fact and fiction. So, yeah, not necessarily as bad as the based on true events yeah, based level, on true, yeah, uh-huh. uh, but they do take a little bit of narrative uh, when we come to see these documentaries. So that's why it's the blend sometimes. So what is the history behind the telling of true crime and, of course, absorbing all things true crime? Again, according to written records, so what we have for ourselves, uh, what we've seen, and not necessarily written in stone, so we may find out more stuff later that they're like, actually, mm-hmm. da, 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 da. but for now... One of the things that we know is that one of the first series of documentations of crime came from China, written in 1617 with a book titled Book of Swindles. And yeah, you can go find more information, but apparently it's like an overall context of people taking things or being swindled and manipulated. So there's that. And within the 16th and 18th centuries, we see the pop-up of street literature in Europe that featured crime stories and even ballads to talk about a perpetrator's motivation, so poems about it weirdly enough. And this would eventually become the penny press that was accessible for everyone because before it was only for upper middle class who could afford getting these stories. But it became such a big hit, they were able to be like, you know what? Everybody should read these. Uh, Of course, this led to the more modern style of true crime in the late 19th century, which was written by William Roughhead, a Scottish lawyer who wrote about a murder trial he attended. But true crime became more popular in the U.S. in the 1920s and was written by Edmund Pearson. Which then became a full-on true crime novel with credit given to Truman Capote, who wrote In Cold Blood, which started this new trend and was even adapted again not too long ago with the movie Capote. And the interest quickly grew into TV and viewing with shows like The Thin Blue Line, which included reenactments of the actual stories and specialized news broadcasts that capitalized on interviews like the Milwaukee serial killer Jeffrey Dahmer, interviews with him or about him. And now has grown even more so, including through podcast, which is one of the fastest growing medias, and through social media like TikTok and Facebook. Right. And then you and I used to talk about how you would get to watch the little clips of the mysteries and some of them maybe horror, like the top 10 most horrible, yes. whatever. Uh-huh. Well, I got, because I do like true crime, I would get snippets of true crime stuff. So hmm. it would give me like a three minute summary. And then, of course, I would be like, wait, I need more. And it start like, so they get you with those little small clips, just so you know. <laughs> So who exactly is fueling this true crime growth that's not decreasing at all? And we talked about it in our Women Who Love Serial Killers as well as in the previous podcast about true crime. Women make up the larger part of the true crime audience. And most of them, if not all, agree that women make up at least 75% of the audience. And several say actually 85% of the audience who consume this true crime genre, specifically when it comes to podcasts. But it's not just that they're consuming 
consuming it, but it's also that we are the ones creating it as well. With the continued growth of people's true crime obsession, we see women spearheading this growth between podcasts that continue to pique the interest of the ever-growing listenerships and the new documentaries that often focus on the sinister details and new details that have never been seen before. Women are the ones that's voicing, writing, and producing this new material. Which my friends are big fans of. Yeah. And they'll always give me, like, today I got a text from a friend about one of her true crime podcasts that she loves. <laughs> and I was like, all right, cool, cool, cool. <laughs> um, in one report, they show that within the top 20 podcasts in the country, the country being the U.S. in this case, at least 11 of them were true crime. And out of that, at least seven were hosted by women. So I was wrong in my assessment and truth hounds. I guess the most famous ones that I think of are men. Right. Other right. than the one big one, which I know we're going to talk about. And though the amount of women and men authors for books are about the same, it is women who dominate true crime podcasts. Even to the point it has brought in new ways of consuming or crossing over, including makeup tutorials, which we will talk about more in a little bit. But statistics are hard to come by for consumers and creators. What we do know is that it isn't going away anytime soon. Right. And I'm not really sure why the statistics are so hard to get to because people are trying to figure it out themselves. Many want to know, but that is the reason I think they want to know the why and not necessarily the numbers. Just mm. saying. Mm-hmm. And since we are talking about women in true crime, we wanted to take a minute to talk about some of the key women who have pushed this growth or even started it. And we're going to start with, and I don't know German, I'm going to try my best, so don't yell at me. Uh, <laughs> Engel Christine Westphalen. How did I do? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah? Okay. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) We couldn't start this conversation without talking about one of the first women writers of true crime that we know of. Once again, putting this every time, we'll say it every time. Mm -hmm. So, Engel Christine Westphalen was a German writer who was not afraid to break through all the rules and all the ceilings that she could. And as we talked about in our episodes on women horror writers, many felt that women should stick to certain types of writing and considered it vulgar when they stepped outside of the preferred realm. As in fact, Westphalen wrote her true crime story, or rather a drama that depicted the Charlotte Corday story of stabbing Jean-Paul Marat. And we talked about them when we were talking about female assassins. Yeah, she was one of them. And once it was discovered that it was written by her, because she was going under pen names, and she'd been writing different things, trying to pretend to be a man. But it soon came out that, uh-oh, She's not a man. And when the men found out, like Johann Wolfgang von Goethe, they were not pleased. He even stated, quote, the worthy author of this tragedy of Charlotte Corday would have better spent her time knitting a warm underskirt for the winter than meddling this drama. So he was very displeased and was like, stick to your underwear, woman. (laughs) Which is like, what? But of course, that didn't stop her. And she made a really big impact and continued on as a writer and won several awards. So screw him, right? Yes. What? What? Winter underskirt? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know about that. Um, (laughs) And looking in the world of U.S. true crime, which is a chunk of the content, we couldn't skip over Anne Rule, one of the first noted women in the true crime genre. Rule is best known for her work on serial killer Ted Bundy, titled The Stranger Beside Me. And she was also known as being a friend of Bundy who worked with her for her book. But her career, much like Westphalen, was met with skepticism and disdain, even though her own life experiences included working in law enforcement 
and writing. She penned much of her work under the pen name of Andy Stack for publications in True Detective, where she was told that writing true crime was, quote, no job for a woman. But she continued and published many true crime novels and books. Right. So she was really big. And when we say that she was uh, friends with Bundy, they actually had met in college before he went on the spree. So she knew him. And so Mm -hmm. after this fact, she went and did interviews and uh, went and visited him and got a lot of his story. So, yeah. To say she had a firsthand knowledge, yeah. Mm -hmm. And it keeps growing in different mediums, including uh, documentaries like Making a Murder. Did you ever watch this, Annie? I don't think you did, right? I did not, no. Yeah. Of course, I I ate it up. So it was a 10-part series on Netflix, which was created by Moira Demos and Laura Ricciardi. So the documentary took 10 years to make, and it started in 2005. And after its actual initial release, uh, later in like 2018, I believe, it had at least over 19 million views in the first five weeks. And not surprisingly, this prompted petitions uh, of new trials, new cases, and outcries of deeper look at the cases, and even like, went after all of the prosecutors in law enforcement. It was not pretty. Um, And of course, it also came out with a part two, which kind of does where they now Mm. kind of situation with a very inconclusive end. Because I don't know if there's been a second trial. I need to go back and look, but it's been a minute that I've heard anything. And I don't think there's really been new information since then. Just a lot of implications. documentary is not the only one. We've moved on to our world, yes, of podcasts. So Serial is often credited as one of the first true crime podcasts, although Criminal, Mm -hmm. Generation Y, and Sword and Skill all preceded that. I think it's just Serial got this really big popularity and it got it started. And the beginning... Yeah, of this huge podcast genre. Of course, all of those other three are very popular still. So it's not going anywhere. None of these are going anywhere. But Serial is credited in its innovative way of investigative storytelling, originating as a spinoff of This American Life, which is part of the NPR series. Reporter Sarah Koenig opened up a whole new world of long-form audio story that allowed for the audience to look beyond just news clips and sad stories to becoming what is now known as armchair detectives uh, with narratives of good and bad guys and possible miscarriage of justice. And it's still talked about today and criticized. There's a lot of criticism and arguments based on Serial and what they brought out. As one true crime writer and podcaster stated, quote, Serial is the most important because it went viral. It got into the zeitgeist and introduced many people to podcasts and got them hooked. Yeah, I want to say that is one of the big beginnings of podcasts. Yeah, I agree. It's one of the first I listened to because everyone was listening to it and everyone was talking about it. And it was just interesting because it brought in a lot of voices and they did like a lot of things that now seem kind of Silly just because it's been parodied. It's not silly at all, but because so many podcasts kind of emulated this formula of, you know, I did the drive and I I timed how long it took and all that stuff. And like, it did bring out all these armchair detectives. And I know people still talk about that first season of Serial Today, like the real people involved. Right. And that is something in, yeah, my YouTube videos I watch where they're like, is this, what's this mystery? And it's inexplicable. And then people are trying to figure it out. Right. They want to know. 
And I do think Serial was a big part of that because it would always end. I remember the music so well. It would always end and it'd be like, well, that's a question for the next episode. And you'd be like, ah! (laughs) (laughs) Did so well. They got you hooked. They did. So... If if we were, let's talk about this question of why, which we've kind of been discussing some yeah. reasons of why do people, and especially women, love true crime. If we are looking at the depth of true crime and how long it's been around, it's not surprising that women were ready to fall in love with every form of true crime, especially podcasts. But again, why? There are so many reasons people give to answer that question, to the reason why women find it so enticing. But the research is fairly slim, not for the lack of trying, as we mentioned, but more so that getting information hasn't been really that easy. Pew Research and others have used the typical methods of questionnaires and surveys, but with the fact that listeners vary, as well as the fact some may not even know outside of the, you know, I just like it. Um, Maybe it's never really asked the question. They just like it. Uh, The reasons are everywhere. Right. And there is a lot of stuff that people talk about with different reasons why they like it. So I saw, I've seen a lot of personal blogs about their explanations or people Mm -hmm. trying to find out. And so they talk about the ones that resonate with them. And many vary. But again, yeah, these are the common ones, I would say. And one is one of the big ones to learn how not to be a victim, saying, I do not want to be caught up in this. How do I stop this from happening? Um, And many women state they want to learn what went wrong and how not to be that victim. Uh, One report states women, quote, have claimed that consuming true crime content led to conscious change in behavior to ensure safety. For instance, double-checking door locks and carrying mace and pepper sprays, which, yeah, those sales went up the more they, uh, like, we see the consuming of true Mm -hmm. crime. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that women are preparing to know how to get out of dangerous situations like kidnapping by learning defensive tactics from those past crimes. Yeah, I'm very aware about trunk safety, how to kick <laughs> out lights. I oh. have like those things ready to go, how to hold your keys. Of course, this is also just being a woman. Sure in general and knowing that dangers await them. Mm. And by consuming such horrific stories, it might help them to analyze and be aware of the psychopaths out in the world. Uh, It's a way of learning motives and learning psychological factors to avoid. So kind of that's just that, oh, this is the type of guy. Oh yeah, definitely the white dude who seems too clean and a little bit off. Don't go, don't go. Right. And that reminds (laughs) me of what we talked about in our kind of science of fear episode and why do women like horror movies where it's a similar thing it's like you're learning in your mind what to avoid and it, and I like there was a comparison from one paper I read that was it's like gossip in a way like gossip functions in a similar manner where you're like okay I'm learning based on this gossip that I will get gossiped about if I do this thing <laughs> and interestingly enough horror and true crime falls under that as well, where we do right. feel like, okay, I am learning from this what not to do or what to do um, right. to keep myself safe. And unfortunately, a lot of times the victims in these are women. Mm-hmm. I That's from my anecdotal understanding, but I think it is true. Just from crime statistics we have, yeah. Yeah. Well, honestly, the fact of the matter, women are very unlikely to be killed. Like, we talked about the fact that how how they will be killed and who will kill them. Mm -hmm. And typically, it's the men who die Hmm. violently. 
mm-hmm. essentially. Uh, that's what it, all the statistics have shown. So it's kind of surprising. But these fears come out of the way women die. So as yeah. we talked about, whether it's horrific abuse or all of those things, rape is a big fear factor in most of our conversations. And we've seen this. Mm-hmm. But that's also that intrigue of when we see crimes against women, it's usually typically horrifically violent and yeah. therefore publicized in such a bigger manner than just drive-by shootings and or right. yeah, accidental deaths like car accidents and stuff. It's typically that level. So the statistics show that men should be more afraid of being killed, Mm. but they're not. Yeah. (laughs) Oddly enough. Uh But again, like I said, the violence in crime against women and then the violence when it comes to serial killers who they've picked for victims, which are the ones that are more publicized uh, and highlighted is what causes that fear. And we'll talk about it in, in a second right now, but watching those horrific stories. Yeah. And that can kind of go to morbid fascination. And and I think probably everyone listening to this can relate to if something happens in your city that catches a bunch of attention, all of a sudden you're getting um, texts from everybody that's like, do you have pepper spray? Don't wear your hair in a ponytail. Don't do this at a certain time. And it, it kind of, it makes sense, but it's also like compared to the ways that I could die. Right. Right. It's just that it's so horrifying and it catches the attention. We did our Women in Revenge episode. I read a really beautiful essay, um, painful essay, written by somebody whose family, I believe, had been murdered. Mm -hmm. And she was just saying, like, she hated it, but she couldn't deny it was intimate. Like, it it felt like this was such an act, like, we're forever impacted my life. This person forever impacted and changed my life. And I can't. It's really hard to separate yourself out from that. And you, it's hard to not feel like you were chosen or something. Right. Which we've talked about that with victim blaming. And, and that's just part of human nature. Right. Uh, another reason people give for their love of true crime and women in specific is voyeurism. Um, and yeah, that's just, again, human nature. just kind of being nosy. That's like a really big morbid bit of like, oh, I don't want to see this, but I'm very intrigued and I need to know what happened. Right. Um, and yeah, that's it's obviously oversimplifying things. But yes, for both men and women alike, there is that sort of train wreck factor that is deeply rooted in so many of us just needing to know and not being able to turn away. Like, I got to know how this ends or like you, you can't. It's almost like a, a freeze thing where you're just like, I can't, I can't look right. away. If you, and you get a small tidbit of that information, you're like, wait, wait. Mm-hmm. Well, I need to know more. And for me, like, I will watch something and I need to know where they are today. Like, <laughs> are they in prison? Are they dead? If it doesn't and conclusively, it just ends with an arrest and maybe a trial, I need to know, well, are they rotting in jail or what? what is happening? Right. Are they sorry? Have they admitted it? Like, there's a many of moments where I have to, like, finish it out. Mm-hmm. Of course, yes, with that watching and an inability just to turn away, there is that level of fear. That's mm-hmm. what intrigues people. Yes, fear of the unknown or the possibility of having something violent happen in your life. And I actually just had a really horrible dream. Annie, I told you about it a little earlier mm-hmm. and I'm not going to go into it. Uh, maybe because we are researching this and so it's in my brain. Mm-hmm. But yes, yeah, stuff that just made me wake up and feel so nauseous and shaken by it. Like it's the worst thing that I can think of possibly happening yeah. But not because of anything other than my dog was involved. I will say that. And so my dog is very precious to me and it was horrifying. 
some of the things that just came into my head. Uh, but it is that fear. Some research say that it's out of fear that women listen and want to know about the situation, again, which could relate to how to care for themselves. But that it's also a way of getting secondhand relief and not being a victim. So yeah. being able to say, that's I've never experienced that, right. makes you feel okay. And I think that's kind of that level of, so we just recently had a really horrific death in Atlanta that happened mm-hmm. in one of our more popular parks. And I don't know where the case has gone, but it definitely brought out all of the, oh my God, there's a serial killer text and notes and message boards. Like it's it's been happening. And the first thing I thought was, I'm because I believe the woman was white. I was like, I'm not a white woman. I'm good. Like there was mm. this little fear, like moment of relief, which I shouldn't be. There should not be. But knowing like, the history of what serial killers, sure. their patterns are. You know that there's like race is a big factor, typically, mm-hmm. typically in all of this. And that's that part, but still want to know. But there is that secondhand relief, which is awful because someone died and, and this needs to be told and we need to get justice for this woman. But there is that fear, like a oh, moment of like, whew, glad that didn't happen to me. Mm, yeah. You know? Yeah, and we talked about that a little... Also in our fear episode, Why Women Love Horror Movies, which is something that's just fascinated me. And I've thought about this idea of use stress, which is a type of stress that is like good. But I think for a lot of women, because we do live with these fears, we do live with when I go outside, you know, I'm thinking about um, the people on the street and where where are my keys and what are my exits and all those things. Um, so I think there is something about watching something and being able to relate, but also be separate mm-hmm. and like kind of release some of that stress that's just built up in you and you don't realize how much is right. built up in you. Right. I do think that's part of it of like, you were already feeling these nerves around this and this fear around this every day. And to watch something is like a way to release all of that built up right. fear. And it'll it'll still build up again, but it's like kind of a just a method of not ignoring it, but also being able to be distant from it and experience it and release some of it. Right. I think. Another reason uh, is sympathy for the devil. And this would be more related to our past episode on women who love serial killers um, and that some people are, women are intrigued by the perpetrator's background and how they were created, the origin story um, I think that's also part of human nature is how could someone do this, like asking that question. And there are some that believe because women are thought to have more empathy than men, that women connect on a different level, especially for the victim, which makes the stories more relevant and personal for women. Right. In a lot of the way, they wanted to see that that justice has happened. So instead yeah. of having, uh, like, I think Serial was a little different because it questioned things. Mm-hmm. But there's so many other true crime, like things with Ted Bundy and things with uh, the uh, Night Stalker. There was endings and there there was a conclusive, this happened. So to have that is also a different level. Like, oh my God, thank goodness. We are so mm-hmm. glad these victims, you know, had justice or hopefully they do get justice. Right. But that's also part of that. Um, and yeah, and with that, again, the puzzles or the detective work behind the series. Some experts state it involves a level of working out the mystery, stating, quote, women like to untangle things. They think a lot. I'm not saying women don't, but they like to work things out. Often think about things 
quite deeply. And obviously, there's a big aspect of that in true crime, especially in unsolved cold case type documentaries or podcasts. There's a lot to think about and to talk about, right? And I know that's what a lot of the different podcast hosts are able to do, like, especially when there's more than one host and they kind of work it out together and talk it through with each other. There's a lot of that trying to unravel this mystery. And for me, yeah, there's a lot of incomplete and unsolved cases. And I like going down that rabbit hole as well. I will start researching individuals. Of course, I don't go down like journalists, investigative journalists who create, who are able to unsolve mysteries themselves and do the, I'm going to drive here to here. I'm not that yeah. <laughs> diehard, but I will start looking and be like, I wonder what this person was doing. I wonder what that person is up to now. Like, there's a lot mm-hmm. of questions that I'm like, I wonder if I can. And I'm also the same person in horror movies, like the whole who done it or who's the killer type of thing that I'm like, I ah, know, so and so. Or this is the twist. Of course, this is the twist. <laughs> I will, I'm that person feeling mm-hmm. like I need to know. That's just me, though. Of course, there are so many other reasons noted. But like we said earlier, there are a lot of speculation about the why uh, with a lot of answers and some assumptions behind it. But there's tons. And for yourself, it may be a completely different reason. And even to the point that they've said things like escapism. Yeah. That's one of the things. And yeah, it's kind of like horror movies. You're like, why would you torture yourself with this for you're able to remove yourself a little Mm -hmm. bit from the horrors? of your own horrors by other people's horrors, which is kind of sad. I, guess, I don't know. <laughs> that feels weird to say out loud. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, there's just so many things we talked about that I feel like are parts of human nature and they might be parts we don't like thinking about too deeply. Right. But it is. And yeah, uh, I have been, as Samantha knows, everyone knows, I've been on a, a fan fiction kick where the, I, there was a mystery. There was a mystery involved (laughs) and there was somebody who was guilty and I was telling everybody, I'm like, it's this person and this is what's going to happen. (laughs) She sure did, y'all. And then we got a text when she found out. Yeah, I was right. But it's kind of that same thing of like, okay, I want to learn to pick up on these clues of like, okay, this person is not trustworthy and avoid them for myself. I think there's a lot of things going on in our love for <laughs> like trying yes. to figure out who did it. Who's the worst? They were from these types of people. I knew. I knew it was him. We've talked about several forms of true crime content, and as our access and different forms of media continue to grow, so does the amount of content, obviously. So from the beginning of true crime, there have been several different forms, and it does continue to grow. And in fact, since the origins of Serial, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of true crime types of content or or, uh, types of media out there to consume. And yes, many of those are on our own network. In the last two years alone, it has grown substantially. Podcasting has become one of the biggest formats for true crime, and maybe it has something to do with the fact that it is in this genre that women have some level of control. According to one report, over 60% of the hosts in this genre are women, and these podcasts are more likely to be produced by women as well. And as we've talked about in several episodes, that's pretty different in the rest of, well, in a lot of the podcasting community where it, it does look like it's, it sounds, <laughs> I guess, mostly men, mostly men. Yeah. 
And and to be fair, according to some past research, again, it's all fluctuating. The people who listen the most are men. Not necessarily about true crime, but in any podcast in mm-hmm. general, the listenership is typically leaning towards men. Not too much. It's not huge. It's almost like right. 55, maybe 60 at most are mm-hmm. men. But again, that may absolutely have everything to do with children in the car and or when we are, yeah, doing childcare versus, you know, it's, Stuff like that makes a lot of affecting and who's doing work and who's doing commuting and what. Mm -hmm. But yeah, and also the fact, yeah, most of the formats, it shows more men are hosts than they are. There are women. But Mm -hmm. yeah, not necessarily with this one. Yeah, interesting. And also... Shout out to the show Morbid um, for shouting us out. <laughs> right? Yeah, I love so thank that. you. My one of my best friends, Katie, who's been on the show. She listens to that show and I got a very excited text from her that she's like, oh my gosh, I shouted out stuff I never told you on my favorite true crime podcast. And I was like, ah, so cool. <laughs> <laughs> and that meant I had to search it. I found yes. it. Yes. And they are very fun. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, so thank you. But all this to say, that doesn't mean books are going anywhere. Um, but there's just multiple avenues of entertainment and that extends to true crime now. And yeah, it, it does. It has extended into so much more than books. Right. There are new forms, uh, including social media forums like TikTok and Facebook, which I just talked about Facebook and like my own exploration. And now I get it. Often it pops up with like, look at this. I'm like, yep, there it is. And there are a lot more to that. Many are sharing snippets of horrific crimes and two minute clips or past clips or past crimes uh, and they're gaining traction for it. So essentially having a person having the uh, green screen of TikTok and like plastic all these articles while they're talking about it in two-minute scripts and saying, click to like, and mm-hmm. first part two, like they are doing it, um, and it was working. Um, and as in fact, there was a specific post in which a woman posted about her sister's murder and disappearance, which led to the arrest of her stepfather, and this is case is ongoing. And this happened on TikTok. I, I actually saw it. I was like, is this, is this real? To the yeah. point that I'm like, is this scripted or is this real? She actually has a post where she's walking down the woods and she has a little written blurb about, essentially, if you know much about TikTok, they said uh, they do a little video, they do a little clips, and they do may, maybe they have a song or audio, but essentially insinuated uh, your stepfather acting like he doesn't know what happened to my sister, but knowing that he, he murdered her or something, or he was the cause of it. And then there, it's to me so eerie when I see things like that. Mm. But, and then her, if you go on to her post later on, it pops up with, y'all did it. We did it. Thank you so much. My stepfather's been arrested. And I'm like, what? (laughs) So to the point that things like that have been happening, of course, there's a lot of backlash with that. And we'll kind of talk about it a little bit later. But it's showing things like TikTok and new forums that are jumping onto this type of genre and content that it works and it's gaining lots of traction still. But again, what does that mean for this genre <laughs> in general? Yeah, well, one thing you were telling me about, I'd never heard of this. Um, a different type of avenue for true crime is the true crime makeup tutorial. Right. Which I thought was like dressing yourself like a zombie or something, but I was way <laughs> off. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> um, Bailey Sarian, and I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, has been accredited with this new content. 
So she has a sub-series within all the content she makes called Murder, Mystery, and Makeup. And she talks about different cases while, as she puts it, quote, <laughs> do my makeup. Um, and it's worked. After she began this new segment, she went from 100,000 YouTube subscribers to almost 5 million. Of course, this was after two years, but still it's very, very... Rapid growth, huge growth. Um, and again, a new trend in the YouTube makeup tutorial world. And why does that work? Well, one viewer said, quote, learning about these awful crimes while watching someone do their makeup makes it a little bit more palatable as opposed to the regular true crime documentary. Right. And researchers agree for many, especially with the younger audience, which is the tutorial has really hit that youthful. And I say youthful because I'm like, what is this? What is <laughs> happening? What What are you kids doing? Mm -hmm. um, but having makeup being a buffer, having someone doing their makeup being a buffer of retelling of some horrible crime has made it more palatable. Now, don't get me wrong, apparently in the series, they're not necessarily talking about brands, they're not telling you anything other than telling you the story while they're putting their makeup on. So mm -hmm. you can kind of see their technique without hearing what they're doing specifically about makeup, but hear the story at the same time so you can kind of concentrate on what's they're putting on their face. Um, and yeah, and it's grown and crossed over into the world of TikTok as well, just again, in shorter versions. It seems more like clickbait to me, but you know, I don't know much about this, which helps to direct the audience to the YouTube channel to give the full story. Right. But it's a whole interesting tactic and it's been around and there's been many uh, people and many uh, YouTubers and social media stars who have jumped on board and doing this as a part of their niche, I guess. Um, and again, it's worked uh, to the point that there are some that do requests. So there was one star who will give uh, Google, I guess, access, Google forms for people to fill out. And it could be requests to talk about this horrific crime, or it can be requests from the victim's families to highlight unsolved cases. So, yeah. you know, some of these things are like, okay, cool. Cool, but it does kind of come back to the pro like ideas like is this helping or hurting? Right. I don't understand, and that kind of comes down to the problems of true crime, and and I think that's partially a bigger conversation of why people are researching why are women doing this? Are women okay? Essentially, is kind right. of the question. Um, and yes, again, there are some problems within this genre and this desensitizing of these horrific crimes, which include some say that part of these are kind of propaganda. Mm -hmm. uh, essentially, propaganda for those who may not know that term is propaganda for uh, enhancing cops or police and hero making them heroes and idolizing them. Essentially, of course, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with law enforcement necessarily. There, we've had conversations about you know police and reformation and or abolishment before. And if you want to listen to that, that's a whole different episode. But there's a conversation about whether or not uh, these stories actually elevate cops in a really too good of a manner or maybe in a bad manner. It's kind of both of those things is according to which one you look at. If you look at the Night Stalker, there's a lot of big conversations of the fact that how the police were heroes. And, and don't get me wrong, we need police to solve crimes like that. Please, please, please know that. But there's a conversation of who is being fetishized in here. Are the heroes getting more credit than, you know, the lawyers or whatever, whatnot. So there's a big conversation about that. <laughs> and, and again, propaganda is a whole 
different conversation that we can have. But then there's also the conversation of our way doing it in a where we're demonizing cops as well. So you see things like making a murderer did not shine a good light on those investigators. Don't get me wrong. Once again, I would also agree justice is meaning to get the right person Mm-hmm. To, and to ask the right questions and to not violate someone's constitutional rights, <laughs> obviously. And maybe we need to have a conversation about what the Constitution looks like today in comparison to when it was created. Again, a different <laughs> conversation. But all of that to say is there, like, there's a little bit of problematic background for both of those things. Like who is doing what and what is the message being said? Also with these true crime genres, it is disproportionately based on white victims and typically white women and kind of has that whole level of who is being a victimized, who is seen as a victim versus who is seen as a lesser case, I guess. A lot of the conversation about why is it that white women are the ones who are focused on and most likely to be seen when it comes to crimes and we see people of women of color are dismissed. Typically, their crimes are not as seen. And, and again, Who is it focusing on? And yeah, again, we talked about this before, the romanticizing of perpetrators and how they became infatuations, such as the Ted Bundy story. It becomes such a weird fetishizing of a horrible man, same way as the Night Soccer, same way as Jeffrey Dahmer. They ended up all having groupies. This is kind of this level of like, ooh, what are we doing with this narrative? And then, yeah, what are we doing to the victims' families? Uh, are we actually holding any kind of real justice to telling their story? Or are we re-traumatizing and honestly feeding off of their trauma? So there's definitely a lot of conversation of what is this, but the one thing we know, it's not going away. <laughs> no. No, and I think there's so much we can pick apart here, and it's just interesting how many aspects of humanity and and sexism and racism that you can kind of see in this one genre where you can talk about like, well, why are women empathizing or perhaps romanticizing perpetrators? And why are women making up a big chunk of the audience? Like, I I think there's a lot to be teased apart in all of this. And we've touched touched on it, but you know, as always, more research is needed. Also... We would love to hear from you listeners. (laughs) Mm -hmm. If you like true crime, we want to know why. You can email us at stephmediamomstuff at iheartmedia.com. You can find us on Twitter at momstuffpodcast or on Instagram at stuff I've never told you. Thanks as always to our super producer, Christina. Thank you. And thanks to you for listening. Stuff I've never told you is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 